I first came across the idea that there could be a concept of value and that that could be something you could inquire into. When I was gifted the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance when I was 15 by a family friend, and I have to be honest, it didn't make much sense. The book's a sort of 70s counterculture novel slash philosophy slash motorcycle maintenance book. And actually, only much later did I come across uh, the idea of value, which made a little bit more sense, which was that value was this economic thing, closely related to money, but not identical with it. And that sense of value is pretty different from the practical understanding of value that we have, which is something useful to us subjectively. And now nobody wants a world in which money determines everything, but then the idea of getting beyond value as a, as a concept of having a society which wasn't organized around value seemed kind of difficult. Like I liked and understood politics and it's hard to understand what value means politically or what its implications might be. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe in the UK. It's Thursday, the 18th of March, and I think we've all been in quarantine or lockdown now for a good year or so. And yet we continue, like some infernal machine, providing things of dubious quality or value to our listeners. Hi, George. Hi, Phil. Hey. Well, I think maybe, you know, some of us produce more value than others in this podcast. Is that because so, you work really um, slowly and so there's more labor time in what you do <laughs> and therefore it has more value? Is that how it works? That's a really lame inside joke, but no, it's not the way it works. It's entirely to do with the intrinsic merit and quality, in this mm. case anyway. Yeah, n- nevertheless, we, we persist. Um, yeah, I don't know what the socially necessary labor time to produce a podcast is. Um, it's not clear if it's socially necessary or not, but it but uh, uh, <laughs> maybe it is. Uh, but yeah, and anyway, today we are we are talking about value theory. Um, I think this should be a really fantastic episode. Um, we have some some big topics to discuss, and I think the 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 main challenge of 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 the episode this evening is how do you link some of these kind of questions within Marx Marx ecology or Marxist theory. Uh, to some really important contemporary political questions, but I think we have the right person uh, alongside the three of us, obviously, to to try to do this. Yeah, and we're going to try not to be too Marxological about it. Um, you know, we know that not everybody will have read and studied Capital, for example, um, but some of this depends on certain concepts and terminology which will be found there, and we'll try to do our best to explicate those out when, when they come up. Yeah, I mean, if if the listeners have have obviously their their heavily annotated first volume of capital they they should have that uh, while they're listening a, along just to to make sure they can can follow um <laughs> what we're talking about uh no no i think it's yeah i mean that's a challenge obviously isn't it how you, how you go from a um from obviously quite a dense text which is the, the foundation of these discussions to to talking about things which are a bit more widely applicable yeah and we're talking about pandemic, identity politics, um, and the sort of dead-end politics of our times as well. So um, something to get your teeth into. Okay, great. So yeah, we're we're very uh, glad to be joined this evening um, by Elena Louisa Lang. Oh, sorry, I should actually ask you how you pronounce your surname, because I mispronounce like every conceivable word that could be mispronounced, I will say uh, with my, my, my terrible Anglo accent. So is it Langer or Lang? 
Oh, please don't say lange when you speak English. It's lang when you speak English. And yeah, it's indeed lange when you speak German. But I don't like these, you know, German pronunciation in English. You know, this is very ambitious. So it's perfect <laughs> if you say lang. Lang. It's like and referring it's... to it Farsi instead of Persian. <laughs> and it's uh, uno cuzo, right? Cuzo, yes. Okay. Cool. It's good. I mean, that just makes me sound like a, and, and it's Zurich, right? <laughs> okay i've got it i've got it all all in the bag then all right cool we're um delighted to be joined uh, this evening by elena louisa lang um who's a philosopher and japanologist living in zurich and is author of uh, value without fetish uno kuzo's theory of pure capitalism in light of marx's critique of political economy which is out in may uh, with uh, brill um so yeah elena great to have you with us Hi, friends. It's great to be here. Cool. So um, just to kick, kick things off, um, you had an excellent piece, um, which we'll link to in the show notes with uh, Joshua Pickett-Diapolis on COVID. And I think the title says it all. The middle class Leviathan Corona, the quote fascism, unquote blackmail and the defeat of the working class. So what's your take on on COVID? What is this middle class Leviathan and what does the analysis of this piece say about our current moment? Yes, yeah, so uh, in the history of political philosophy, as you know, uh, Thomas Hobbes in the early 17th century, um, for him, the Leviathan was the absolute political sovereign. And what I'm trying to do in this article together with Joshua is, is to say how, to show how the middle class has now assumed this position. So there's kind of a new constellation that now everybody is at the mercy of a class that presents its self-interest as the interest of the oppressed, you know, and only they get to define who is oppressed. So there's a kind of like a paradigm change. It's no longer the super rich elite that defines its interest as that of all, but kind of a new elite. And this is the, this, this middle class Leviathan. And now who is this, this middle class Leviathan? Um, it's of course, um, the profess professional managerial class that you talked about before in your show and media figureheads from the liberal left in the UK. Um, you have, yeah, I mean, people like Owen Jones and Novara Media, The Guardian. But in Germany, you have um, the Spiegel, Die Zeit, you have state television. Uh, but even, I would say, also radical left-wing um, journals like Analyse und Kritik, they defend these, uh, um, the middle class uh, more than they do the working class. And in the United States, you have these um, archetypical um, middle class uh, interest defending um, journals and media outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and so on. So what does the middle class Leviathan do? Or how, is it, how can it be characterized? I think it can be uh, characterized by its uh, despotism. So over the last year, with regard to Corona, they, uh, they really advocated tough lockdowns. So um, they advocated going tough on people who don't keep uh, social distance, distancing rules or wear masks. And this was all uh, under the heading of to save lives, you know, saving the NHS and so on. But what happened very suddenly uh, in the end of May, beginning of June, and the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, where there were no social distancing rules at all. We hear that protesting racism is more important than saving lives. And this 
this thing, like going from one to the opposite, um, you know, contradictory measures, that was really arbitrary. And I think this is a, this is a hallmark of, of, of despotic rule. And so what happened uh, was that uh, uh, this anti-racism became a, a civil duty, but nobody really asked if, if non-whites actually profited from this moral gesture. And, uh, and I would say that the whole political project of the middle-class Leviathan is legitimized by this, this moral, this purely moral gesturing. And it's also tied to the replacement of politics proper with more or less moralistic concerns. And this is uh, expressed more or less openly in identity politics, which is at the end of the day, it's just bad moral philosophy. Um, so this is, this is what I want to say. And Joshua had another point, which I think um, is really important that the middle class, although it has class interests, it cannot have a political project of its own. So it's more like a sycophant that mm. it attaches itself to the most dominant ideology, which um, in our time of you know, a non-existent workers' movement is, is the ruling class, the capitalist class. And now the fascism blackmail is, is that when you know, the, the horizon of political alternatives becomes so small that any shearing out of course of this, this moral gesturing, the moral framework, uh, um, is, is labeled as fascism, you know. And this is ironically happening at a time when there is no fascism as a political project um, to speak of. And um, mm. we have this consolation, I think, because uh, of uh, historically, I would say, historically unprecedented defeat of the working class and working class interests. So, um, Elena, Alex, your question, why can't the middle class have its own political project? Because I think what would be traditionally understood as a middle class political project would be something like rationalization of society or, you know, indeed, even maybe making it more ethical, like which would be more in, in, in keeping with the contemporary vibe. Um, so, I mean, not to say that I would endorse those politics, um, but there does seem to be the possibility, at least, of a, of a middle class project and that there's a certain continuity between let's say middle class politics of mid century and today in terms of trying to make uh, capital smooth the edges of capitalism, I suppose, at least. Yeah, but you uh, you see, I think you have to um, differentiate between the class interests of the middle class, which is to preserve the status quo. I agree with you, but um, that is not the same as to say it has a political project. A political project in a capitalist society either pertains to the capitalist class or the working class, you know, and and the working class has or should have, you know, a political project. It has one that it hasn't, isn't conscious of at the moment, it's a historical moment. And the capitalist has a, a, has a political project, but the middle class can only attach itself to other interests, you know, to, and this, mm. in this, in this case, it would be the interests of the capitalist. You know, it's also imaginable that uh, the middle class, and this used to be the case, at least in Germany, uh, you know, in the in post-war Germany, uh, the whole political discourse, I, I'm thinking about people like, I mean, I'm thinking about the Frankfurt School of uh, Critical Theory, um, was much more invested in working class interests. And this has disappeared you know, virtually disappeared in the 1980s with the conservative revolution, the conservative turn under Helmut Kohl. So um, they don't really have a political project. And 
you know, that uh, of its own that had to be realized in a new entity. So the only thing they can say is, is they, they can do is attach themselves to, to something, to particular class interests, either of, of the capitalists or the workers. Mm. So I think I think that leads n- nicely that that kind of contradiction of having essentially having a class project, but not being able to to speak about it in in that class's own name. And that's the situation yeah. that the middle class is in. That leads nicely on to an, another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is that you're you're editing a, a collection um, called The Conformist Rebellion that's framed essentially as a Marxist critique of the contemporary uh, left, which apparently has a, a really great lineup of contributors. Um, and I think we'll, we'll probably move to talk about some of the theoretical underpinning later when we talk about um, value theory. But politically, what's what's your analysis of the contemporary left? How does it come out of this point around, I guess, that contradictory position that the middle class finds it in with itself in with relation to having seemingly captured the state but not being able to to kind of speak a class project in its own name well first of all the conformist rebellion is um yeah it's an this edited collection that i'm editing together also with joshua uh which is out early next year and uh so joshua and i we've been talking about uh various problems within the left and we were yeah, feeling a deep dissatisfaction with the state of the left today. And so the biggest critique that we launch are the, the most uh, general uh, terms and the most general terms to put this critique is that the left comfortably uh, ignores Marx's critique of political economy and his analysis of capitalist relations of production as class relations. So that, that's something that, that doesn't happen so much anymore. Uh, and instead, uh, the left, uh, um, more or less, we, we address the academic left, but also the activist left, falsely reproduces the relation between capital and labor as that between, uh, you know, black and white or women and men. And now, okay, some leftists say that their concept of race isn't identitarian, but I think this is even worse, you know, then it conflates class and race. But this is, you know, this, this false reproduction is, is of, of a contradiction, of a basic social contradiction that we have in capitalism, uh, which is falsely reproduced in, in, into something else. This is archetypical of ideology, you know, and a, as I would say, an objectively false semblance of an underlying essential relation, uh, which is then reproduced as really existing. And this is quintessential about the left. Um, this is a point I make also in the tr- introduction to the volume when I talk about uh, the subsumption of the concept of class into the trinity formula of race, class, and gender, as we find intersectional, uh, intersectionality theory and so on, um, which is, at the end of the day, is a mystification of the real relations. And, w- and I use this term trinity formula the same way that Marx has used the term Trinity formula to criticize Adam Smith's uh, 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 concept of the three sources of revenue, uh, capital, labor, and land, uh, which is also a mystification of the real relation, which is also a mystification because it uh, ascribes just as much uh, power of generating wealth to capital and to land as to labor when labor mm. is the only source of value. Yeah. So um, this is, this is a, there's a parallel I see in this mystification. And this is a, this is a critique that we launch. And, and one more point maybe, um, 
much of the of left theorizing um, completely ignores um, that social relations in, in, in capitalism are mediated by money. And that's why uh, many leftists today, or even calling themselves Marxists, you know, everybody calls themselves Marxists today, are in fact Ricardians. You know, the, for Ricardo, money isn't really a factor in social reproduction. So uh, this is also something we, we try and address in this book. So a, a, a couple of points just to, just to push you on a little bit. So the, the conformist rebellion, wh- wh- why d- is is that the rebellion of the of the volume? Is itself um, conformist, or what's what's that? I guess what, the, what's the title hinting at? The title is hinting at at being at the, uh, the preservation of the status quo, or even the accommodation of today's left to the neoliberal status quo by precisely by integrating class relations or subsuming class relations to other uh, social relations like, like race and gender, you know, by, not, by no longer focusing on the primary position of, of the capital labor relation, they uh, automatically attach themselves to, to um, you know, we are all right with, with, with the status quo right now. Because mm-hmm. as you know, uh, I don't, this relates back to identity politics. Identity politics is not the only issue we talk about, but this is our, our vantage point. We also, we have big chapters on, on other streams in the current left. We have one on, on Brexit. We have one on culture uh, of art, on art and film, and how uh, the left has, has, you know, has completely forgotten about or started to be more forgetful, I think, um, you know, about this, this, the main contradiction in society, and and uh, you know, so, uh, so yeah. So I guess I guess the the, the second point is, is is it basically too simple then to say that this is a a theoretical attempt to 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 put classes central again, or to put the the labor capital antagonism as as central to 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 the left, and so therefore to recover what the left could be. It's not too simple to say, and I have nothing against being simple here. I think this is a, we, we make a really straightforward intervention. You know, this is there hasn't been so much intervention in this clarity, not that I know of, at, at least uh, in the last years. There's uh, there's been a book by um, by somebody named Das uh, on class, on the importance of class, but how many? Uh, publications of the of the last 10 or 15 years in academic or, or trained leftism do you know that that uh, that demand this kind of critique you know critique from the standpoint of labor or the standpoint of not of labor but of the uh, um, abolition of of subsumption of labor mm. uh, under capital maybe, can i just jump can later. i just Jump into yeah, to ask go on, uh, some clarifying things. I mean, or rather, maybe to play devil's advocate. Although I agree with you, Elaine, I think many leftists and people who see themselves as materialists and not playing the essentialist identity politics game, nor the kind of maybe more postmodern one of, you know, just pure, pure play of identities, um, who would see themselves as fighting for working class interest, for working class advancement, and whose key term, I guess, uh, or keyword that they follow would be inequality. And so although they're concerned with other oppressions with gender and race, they're primarily interested in class and working class advancement. Um, What you're saying is, I guess, critical of that, but maybe if you could explain why 
those are different things. Why concern with inequality is not the same as what you're saying. Yeah, inequality is is not the same as as uh, putting it like that. Um, addressing inequality or being interested in the problem of inequality isn't the same as being interested in in class abolition. <laughs> you know, so. Um, this is also a Ricardian uh, uh, position we find in the left a lot in equality. So the problem of capitalist production is not a uh, wrong kind of distribution, you know, fairer or more just distribution of, of social wealth. This is not the problem. The problem is the social form of production that we find in capitalism. So this very social form is what uh, uh, I'm trying to, to criticize and attack in my, in my writings. Right. Yeah. No, we, I think... So uh, what I want to say, this this really goes into the, the, the value theory thing that we want to talk about. <laughs> so maybe I can elaborate on that when we talk. About yeah, no, I, I, was, I was about to make a, a somewhat similar, similar point that I think I think that the I guess the theoretical underpinning of some of these political interventions we can we can we can come to. But before we get onto that, just an, another, you know, final preliminary question. Um so just a little bit about your 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 background and your research because you're you had a career in the arts before you went back to school um as it were and now research japanese marxism i mean could you it's rare that we have an expert in i guess japanese marxism on on the podcast so and it's not very well known in the in the anglophone world so what's interesting about the development of marxism in in japan yeah um so to start off with my, my background, my career in the arts, well, I had a bit of a career in music in, 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 in the 90s and early 2000s in the German indie music scene, which was more or less a subculture of a subculture, but which, which was also my political education. And all this time I studied uh, philosophy and Japanese studies. I wrote my PhD. And uh, that was all before Marxism, before I got interested in Marxism. My upbringing was, was pretty Marxist-Leninist, so I rebelled against that by, by, reading, <laughs> by reading Frankfurt School theory. And wow, that's, that's quite a rebellion. <laughs> that, that was quite a rebellion. Um, yeah. Uh, tell, but, tell us, Elena, uh, what was the political education in the music scene, on the music That scene? was really interesting because... Um, um, <laughs> After the reunification of Germany in the you know 1990, and I was pretty young then still, but the people I I played music with later they were all in these Wohlfahrtsausschüsse, you know, social uh, mutual aid. I, I think uh, it's called in English. Uh, these little um, they were very politically engaged and playing a lot in Eastern Germany. And then what happened? The 90s were very very political in Germany, and uh, you know danger of new nationalisms and. And then the first uh, war of aggression from Germany in 1999 and the NATO aggression against, you know, um, then Yugoslavia. And this, this is where I was radicalized and a lot of, lot of people I know also in this music scene were radicalized or in the art scene more generally. And then the, the war in Iraq and uh, the question of imperialism. Then there were the anti-imps, the anti-imps as we called them and the anti-deutsche as we also called them and they always they had constant fights among themselves which were very um 
yeah, educational in a way for me. I was quite young, but I followed all and I tried to participate in this kind of, of very, they made no prisoners, you know, when they were <laughs> discussing and we were hanging out mm. in bars, you know, uh, and, and talking and all night long about these things. The anti-Deutsch um, are a very, um, very specific and peculiar, um, I suppose, group on the left um, in Germany specifically. I wonder, is it perhaps you could tell us very briefly about what the anti-Deutsch stand for? Just so, just a anti-imp, I suppose, is fairly straightforward in that anti-imperialism is familiar across um, the Western left. I think people will know what it means in their own context if they're familiar at all with left politics. Whereas anti-Deutsch is slightly more specific. Well, the the anti-Deutsch formed themselves as a reaction against the um, the peace movement, actually, uh, against uh, 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 the anti-imperialists who were anti-Americans, more or less. Yeah, I mean, you, could, you could just say that. And especially during the first uh, Iraq war and then the second Iraq war. And uh, the anti-Deutsche did everything in reaction to the anti-imps uh, anti or anti-imperialists. And um, they were extremely, well, as the name says, anti-German, anything that that uh, that where there was a initiative by Germany to go forward in this or that direction, that was equaled uh, with uh, fascism. You know, they want the Third Reich back. That was what the, what the anti-Deutsches said. And um, this danger of re renazification was seen everywhere. I think they exaggerated in some points, but some of the political theory was really really good. So they were. Um, there was there's this little a publisher in, in, in Freiburg, Saira, and they do amazing stuff. And they also published a lot of value theorists and like uh, Hans Georg Backhaus and so on. So they were Marxists uh, who were deeply influenced by by Adorno and uh, yeah Frankfurt School of Critical Theory more generally. Mm. And um, yeah, they were extremely intellectual. They're very, very serious people, very earnest people, uh, almost almost to the point of fanaticism, I, I would say. But not everything they said was totally bonkers. So uh, sometimes the way they are uh, described or depicted in, in, uh, in forums and social media is, is just wrong. So in terms of Japanese Marxism, which is how we started this this part of the conversation, how did you get interested in in that? And what's, what do you think is kind of valuable or interesting about um, Japanese Marxism specifically? Yeah, so I, I studied uh, Japanese philosophy. I did my PhD in Japanese philosophy before doing any Marxism. But then I, then I lived in Tokyo for a time and, um, and I came back... Uh, to Germany and then I went back to Japan to to really pursue my interest in, in, in Marx and in Marxism and what what's interesting about Japanese I wouldn't say Japanese Marxism it sounds some, somehow culturalistic but maybe Marxism in Japan is they have uh, really highly developed debates about uh, value theory even from from the from the post uh, World War II uh, period uh, because Japan really stood in the shadow of the Cold War. It was really something, uh, you know, that was reckoned with during the Cold War. And so it, the, the uh, academics, they could pursue their, their studies of Marxism. And they did so with, with a real vigor, which was really interesting to me to read these texts from the 1940s, 1950s. But ironically, it was the U.S. occupation that brought that Marxism to Japanese high schools and universities. So... 
what's interesting about Marx in Japan that Marx was read at uh, is read at economics departments and not philosophy or cultural studies. You know, um, that's that's I think that's, the biggest yeah. difference. So how I think that the is US quite different to the anglophone how, world. How did the U.S. occupation import Marxism? That was because, um, as you know, that during the 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 era of of ultranationalism in the Pacific War, uh, Marx was forbidden of course, and uh, the, the Communist Party was um, suppressed and so on. But, um, and the US occupation brought back all the things that were suppressed during this era, during the ultranationalist era. And they said, yeah, Marx is, you know, read some Marx. If you read uh, Hegel or Kant or, or, or Hobbes, why don't yeah. you read Marx? And they opened the, the schools again and said, here, you got the books, you know, <laughs> do what you want with it. And yeah. So um, Marx was was widely read in Japan before that, but it was the U.S. occupation that that encouraged universities also to read, to read Marx. Not because they they thought uh, you know uh, they thought it was a part of the canon, canon. so they they uh, brought it back and, and said yeah, do it, and, and the Japanese did it. Liberal education, huh? Yeah, um, and and to me the interesting thing is that that Mar you can be a Marxist today in Japan and be uh, employed at a at a university and and at the economics department. This is something <laughs> that is completely unimaginable uh, in, in, in in you know in Europe or the United States. So well, not that's entirely, a bad thing, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but he's not you know Marx is not understood uh, as as just as a philosopher or you know some somebody who said the thing about the philosophers have just you know interpreted the world the points to change it no he's really a capitalist being widely read and i've i did some workshops there did some talks in japan and the people are really into it even young people so that was really refreshing is there any way that you could maybe say differentiate i know you were reluctant to say japanese marxism but say you know we're familiar with say i don't know um we might think of russian marxism uh, connected to Lenin and the Bolshevik tradition, Italian Marxism connected to Gramsci. If you had to identify something that was distinctive and um, important about the Japanese contribution, what, what would you say it might be? Well, the, there's the the activist uh, um, Japanese left, and then there is theoretical Marxism. I think theoretical Marxism is, is more interesting. Um, and... There's this this figurehead, I think, even of of uh, Marxism in Japan when it comes to economy. We're talking about uh, the economy critical Marx here, and that is Unokozo, and uh, he has formed his own school in post-war uh, Japan. Um, and what is it's not so much it is actually not a political invention at all, but he's try, he tried to systematize Marx in a, in a very specific way, which was which then became very influential uh, also internationally. So uh, it's interesting to, to have such an elaborate level of theoretical Marxism and so many well-read uh, Marxists in Japan, but virtually no activist Marxist left in Japan. So I couldn't, you couldn't really compare it to the Russian Revolution and the trajectory in, in, in Italy or in France. I think that would be very difficult. Mm. Well, the 1968 movement was, was the student movement was very, uh, very active. And there's just this one thing uh, I remember from reading those texts that the situationists, Debor and so on, they were in fact influenced by, uh, by Japanese Marxists at that time, the Japanese student uh, revolts. 
But I mean, that is the only thing I remember. It's interesting. I mean, I growing up in Europe, I guess, and and you know, spending my twenties in Europe. I had this kind of assumption that, you know, Marxism is Marxism, it's universalist, it's international, and therefore it's kind of the same everywhere. Um, and that you might have different contributions from people in different places, but that the basic questions remain fundamentally the same. And I think my experience in Brazil is that actually, no, the, the fact of being in a different situation actually brings to, to the forefront different questions, you know, that, that there's... So firstly, I want to ask, is there a particular, you know, my thinking is with regard to Brazil, that the specific conditions of Brazil and the failure of development, the failure of modernization is a central question of um, Brazilian Marxism, I suppose. Whereas in Japan, I guess it would, would be different because I mean, Japan did develop, did become um, part of the core capitalist countries. So firstly, is there a central question that is kind of distinct about Japanese Marxism, which would be different from people, what people would be familiar with in the UK or Germany? Um, and also, is there anything that uh, you would recommend to people if they were interested in, in learning a little bit more about it, where to start? Yeah, well, um, this, this Brazilian uh, Marxism question isn't so different from, from the Japanese Marxism question. Uh, there was a huge debate in the 1930s in Japan about the character of the, uh, uh, the Meiji Restoration in 1868. You know, when the mm. when the tenno, when the when the emperor was reinstalled, you know, as a sovereign of the state and when the feudal uh, um, relations were abolished. Uh, yeah. And so this this big debate in Japanese Marxism was whether this 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 Meiji uh, restoration was, in fact, a bourgeois revolution that introduced capitalist relations of production to Japan or whether this was a reinstallation of some kind of pre-modern feudalist uh, uh, institution. Right. And uh, so there was the, the Communist Party uh, Marxists, the Kozaha, uh, they had this theory of uh, Ichidankai uh, Kakume, this is the, the one-step revolution. Uh, so they, um, I'm sorry, no, they, they said there's, there has to be a two-step revolution. First was the, the, the reinstallation of, of, of the emperor, which reinstalled, uh, reinstalled feudalist relations. But then you needed a second, a socialist, a real, true socialist revolution from that. And then there was another uh, uh, faction, the the so-called Ronoha, which was the, um, the the laborers and and the peasants. And they said, um, no, this is already a bourgeois revolution in the perfect sense, and we only have to go to a true revolution from here. It's mm. just a one-step revolution. And then they, the whole uh, character of the debate was shaped. Of, because of the question is, is why is Japan a backwards country or how can you know how can Japan keep up you know with with competition on the world market and so on so they they um, they asked this question uh, how fast should Japan be integrated in the world market in order to overcome these relations you know? so in, in terms of uh, um, an introductory reading for for our listeners if, if they're interested in following this up but before moving on to value theory is is, is there one or two things that um, they could they could follow up. There's a really good book by Jermaine Houston. She is I forgot which university she's at, but she wrote a really good book on on uh, Marxism in Japan, where she goes into detail of all the participants in the debate. So if you Google Jermaine Houston, I forgot the title of the book, but it came out in 1985, and it's still I think the best. Uh, um, yeah 
recapturing of, of this debate in the 1930s. Cool. And we'll, uh, we'll include links uh, in the show notes for listeners if you're interested in chasing that up. Cool. So on to um, value theory. So because you, your, your new book is, is, is about this very topic, uh, Phil. So I wanted to ask you about the significance of value theory, Elena, um, and particularly off the off. I mean, partly of my own personal background, because I remember a phase perhaps about five to seven years ago, and there was this whole proliferation of reading groups um, by various mm-hmm. leftists um, for Marx's capital. I'm sure at least some of our listeners uh, pass through it, and if they did, um, you know, they'll probably be familiar with some of these questions, and at the very least, they'll know that these questions of um, what the theory of Marx's labor theory value is, the meaning of the value form, they're not only difficult, but they can also appear downright esoteric or even hermetic. So could you explain to us why is it important to have a grasp of value theory? Phil, I'm very happy to answer this question. So first of all, maybe my book is indeed about value theory, but it's more essentially a debate between Marx's critique of political economy and I sometimes prefer to use the, ta- the term critique of political economy, which I sometimes use uh, synonymously with value theory. And uh, Uno Cosa's um, rather functional theory of pure capitalism, which I think fails to address the problem that Marx addresses even on the level of the theory of value. So now, why is value theory important? So, more yeah, on a more general level, I would say without value theory, I think it becomes very difficult to understand the workings of capitalism. And more importantly, the fetishisms it creates to keep itself out of the picture. So for example, uh, exploitation. You know, exploitation is not just exploitation. Uh, behind uh, the problem of exploitation uh, is a question. And the question is, how can unequal exchange be explained on the basis of the law of equal commodity exchange? You know, then one needs a concept of value for that to explain exploitation. One needs a concept of socially necessary labor time for that. If you don't have that, you cannot explain how unequal exchange between capital and labor is possible on the basis of equivalent exchange. Another thing, uh, money without uh, value theory it's very difficult, I think, to explain what money actually is and why capitalism without money is unthinkable, you know, unless you have a concept of value as abstract labor. Yeah. Uh, um, this is something that is, I think, going to be very difficult to explain. And even, you know, in the modern monetary theory and so so on, uh, there's no reference to, to abstract labor, to money as abstract labor at all. And also, if you don't have value theory, then how are you going to explain the production of poverty on an increasing scale? You know, you need the the general law of capitalist accumulation, which is based on theory of value. And then I think you also have a hard time explaining crisis, inherent crisis tendencies of capitalism. You know, the falling rate of profit can only be explained on the basis of value and surplus value as the structuring mechanisms of of contemporary uh, capitalist society. So this, this, these are all things uh, that you need value theory for. Yep. So, I mean, I, I guess to dig a little bit deeper and, and maybe also to kind of simplify it, especially for people who 
maybe haven't read much Marx uh, or any Marx or certainly haven't studied at least kind of volume one of Capital, because I think there's, a, I guess, a, a, a risk of seeming like, okay, if you understand these complicated words, then somehow the world will be revealed. I guess, what's the nucleus of this idea? What's, what's the, you know, what is value theory a theory of, I guess? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a great question. Oh, sorry, were you finished? Um, yeah, I, I was going to say more, but I thought, no, I'm going to let you explain and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, thanks. Uh, this is a great question. And indeed, uh, um, as, I, as I said before, and this was a bit just, you know, as, a side, uh, as an aside, but it, it's about fetishism. It's about explaining uh, um, the illusions of capitalist society. You know, you know, don't have to understand complicated concepts. Uh, but what I think is very useful to understand is um, the historical uh, specificity of, of the social form of labor uh, that produces value, you know, because value theory is the theory of the social form of la labor and capitalist relations of production. And if you understand that this is historically specific to capitalism alone, then you understand a lot. You understand that this is wage labor, labor that is that that is uh, that receives a monetary wage. You understand that labor uh, it's the kind of labor that produces quantifiable units of value, which are always measured measured in money. This is also historically specific. And you understand that that this is a kind of labor that is not aimed as producing at producing use value. It is not aimed at the satisfaction of needs. So with that framework, you can address a lot of you know problems that are happening or, or you know things that are that are occurring in, in, in our historical time. And the question that that interests value theorists is is this question of fetishism. So why does labor uh, and, and capitalism always assume the form of value, you know, the value form as, as money, predominantly money. So only, it is only because in this way, uh, as quantification of, of labor, as quantification even of, of life, that capital can relate to itself as capital. But the, this, the, the thing that's happening here and the thing that really interests me and which I talk about in my book at length is and the concepts of money and capital and these value forms, even in price, the relation to labor is completely obscured. You know, this is the fetishism that's happening. And that's why we need a labor theory of value because it, it uh, defetishizes, it demystifies these concepts of political economy. You know, and so, it also explains how these concepts become disentangled from the expenditure of human labor and become fetishisms. So, I mean, I guess if I, I'm going to maybe do a bad job of summing this up, but, you know, if capitalism is a global machine for the production of value, which it extracts from living labor, and then it gets circulated around, I mean, that's something that you find in Marx. What is distinct or what is, you know, why does value theory need a name, you know, which is value theory and isn't just Marxism that we all know? Or to put this in a different way, what would be your criticism, I guess, of other, you know, many forms of Marxism, which overlook or ignore the things that you think are important in value theory? Yeah, well, 
So most of the so-called Marxist theorists that I read, even like political Marxism, Robert Brenner, they have a, or used to have an excellent analysis, but they completely disregard this problem of fetishism. So they treat the commodity and money and capital and prices of production and profit and rent and interests, you know, all these, these concepts that, that, that make up, you know, uh, the concepts of, of uh, political economy, they treat them as at face value. And, and the, it would be interesting or it would be, so the duty would be to, to explain what they have got to do with the exploitation of unpaid human labor. And it would be, um, it would be important to explain how they become autonomous, these concepts, you know, interest bearing capital. What is this thing, interest bearing? Why does capital uh, uh, bear interests? Is it like a, like a pear tree that bears fruit? You know, this is something that, that Marx says. So the crux of the matter you say is, what's happening is a naturalization of, of, of these concepts, even in Marxist theory. And, uh, and there is no longer a problem consciousness, I would say, to this, to this whole complex of fetishism that Marx addresses and which culminates for Marx in the critique of this Trinity formula. Even in, in of, of course, obviously in non-Marxist economics and marginalism, you have this, this idea of the factors of production and so on. And, um, but sometimes, and this is what I address in my book, sometimes even Marxism verges into this terrain of marginalist economics. So I didn't really initially want to talk about this, but since you asked me, Alex, um, there are a whole bunch of Marxists who say that values um, constituted an exchange. And um, Michael Heinrich, he's, he used to be very ambiguous on this point, but this is something that he would say. He'd say uh, value is something that is not entirely confined to production. It is also, uh, value is something that's also uh, constituted an exchange. And this is not a Marxist position. This is not Marx's position, but many Marxists have taken over, I would say, uh, have, have steered into this terrain of, of neoliberal economics, more or less. So, I mean, this but, is something I'm, yeah, practic I guess I, practically, I, I, that would be something like the idea that you have productive labor, stuff that actually produces value. And, you know, you're classically thinking about a factory, um, probably, you know, a Foxconn factory in China, probably take the kind of most obvious example today. And then you have this other idea, which you disagree with, which is that value is created through exchange, through maybe through finance, perhaps, um, which you'd hold that doesn't actually exactly. create new value. But this is a fetishism. This is what Marx addresses in, in, in Capital as a fetishism. You know, he says even in, as early as, as the fourth, uh, fifth chapter of the first volume of Capital, Marx says, um, the exchange of commodities, circulation or the exchange of commodities does not create value. And a lot of uh, self-described described Marxists uh, disagree with that. And so there's this uh, Marxist economist, uh, who used to be a politician actually from, from the Netherlands, Gerd Reuton, he says, there is no such thing, such thing as value before the commodity enters the market. You know? And, and then there's, uh, there's Michael Heinrich, there's Gerd Reuton, there's Chris Arthur, there's, there's a whole bunch of, maybe to your listeners, quite obscure uh, theorists, but uh, so, which I'll get a mention in my book, you know. So, just, so yeah. I, I guess just to, to maybe move, move this a step 
forward into the i guess the the political stakes of some of these discussions because i think that they are you know obviously the the interpretation of these concepts is from marx's work is 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 really interesting and important but there's another question as to what <clears throat> i guess what what is riding on on this um and to, so maybe to move this on to the the critique of identity politics which which you've which you've advanced because i think that would be the the really interesting point to see how that how these things link together um and you know to 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 simplify massively um there a critique of, of identity politics which sees it as an expression of um pmc class interest um and so basically the idea that this that there are certain um i guess you know to, to put it quite bluntly there are certain um class interests which are which are furthered by um the battering ram of identity politics um but how would the critique that you would put forward um be different from that which is essentially a, a quite an instrumental one that you know people people don the the clothes of identity politics when it when it suits them and and then discard them later when when they've achieved what they want to um what they want to achieve yeah i mean um identity politics as representing the class interests of the pmc is 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 okay. I mean, it's, it's maybe one aspect uh, of, of, you can address it as one aspect of the more general critique that value, value theory would have. I think I find it really interesting that you would say value theory, a value theoretical critique of identity politics. I've never thought about it this way. Uh, and, and, but what's, what are the stakes of the problem? Or how would value theory address uh, this identitarian, it's more a philosophy, I would say, or a, a moral philosophy. I think that value theory can actually show that this, this, uh, this ominous class reductionism that's always been talked about is not a theoretical position of a certain thinker like Marx, but it's a reductionism performed by social reality. And this is what value theory can really mm. show. And so, uh, it, this is a big, yeah. Yeah, no. What do you mean by this? Because I think this is right at the right yeah. at the center of it. Yeah, I, I think um, this is a really big game changer in the epistemological stakes of the problem. Um, so, class reductionism is 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 really not a question of thought. It's not a question of a theoretical position that somebody assumes, but it's a question of of an actually performed abstraction, a real abstraction, a real reductionism that happens because. Uh, this is what happens because individuals are, are subsumed to the to their class position, which really takes place every day through the wage and the money dependency. You know, and what I mentioned before about uh, uh, quantifiable units uh, that that labor produces, uh, not just the commodities uh, are quantifiable, and everything that is produced under capitalism as a use value is quantifiable as a, as a value, but uh, human life itself you know is 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 um su subjugated I, I could almost say to this law of value to this re rejection to class and reduction to one's dependency on, on on wage and this goes for workers as well as capitalists i think and this is uh something that value theory has shown uh historically uh it's already been uh, formulated in, in uh, frankfurt school theorists uh alfred schmidt 
uh, has to be named here, who says that this economism, this uh, that is always lamented, you know, in these oh, it's just a pure economism. How can? You? But this is not a, this is not a theoretic position. This is a socially performed uh, abstraction. So, to 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 maybe get a bit more specific here, because um, I think there's kind of linking some of the. Um, some of the problems with the contemporary left around this 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 trinity that you you spoke of earlier. Um, one example that I, I know you've uh, you, that you've written on on before um, is is the work of Assad Haider. So, what's your political disagreement um, with 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 his work? I'm not so much interested in, in Assad Heiser as, as a person. I, I, I use him more or less as a stand-in for the academic left at the moment. So it's not against Haider per se, but the trained leftists he represents. And I think he represents the stream I talked about earlier of the of the Trinity formula, you know, as uh, uh, race, class, and gender are all equally important. And we need uh, cross-class democratic struggles uh, against capitalism. You can't just have the workers' movement, you know. This is, I think, a stream that, that Haider represents. And this is a point he makes very clear in his critique of Adolf Reed. And this is what I, uh, 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 what I dealt with when I, when I wrote uh, uh, my article on, on him. So what I... What I would say about Haider is, uh, yeah, at a mo more general level, that he doesn't understand class reductionism, as I said earlier, as a socially performed abstraction. It's not an abstraction in the mind of a theorist. So Haider thinks that Adolf Reed thinks uh, that one should assume a class reductionist position. <clears throat> so um, Haider also really doesn't have a concept of the contradiction between capital and labor. Really, I couldn't find that in his, in his work so far. And, and he even says, uh, if I remember correctly, he says um, <clears throat> that um, with the development of the forces of production, um, that labor is not more and more subsumed under capital and real subsumption, but less. And there is, uh, with the development of forces of production, that that labor can free itself from this, uh, from, the, from the fetters of, of capitalism. This is this is a really really strange way to, to phrase this development. So, and then he makes this point, which is I think central to his to his uh, writing. He says mm. that the notion of class flattens the meaning of diverse struggles, and he says we need to broaden right. the struggles. I think this is nonsense. I mean, how does class flatten or narrow the meaning of struggle when the struggle of labor against capital would be the only adequate and general expression of, I would say, virtually everybody's interest? You know, the wage dependency is universal. And even for unemployed and so-called surplus proletariat, uh, uh, we, we cannot understand why there is something as a surplus of people if we don't understand that this surplus is produced uh, by the needs of capital mm. to appropriate as much surplus labor as possible through the wage form. You know, how can you say that we need to broaden the struggles? You know, you always, these people always want to broaden struggles and exclude mm. class. Presumably the, the argument would be that the, the broadening is required because some struggles are experienced through the um, through the lens or through the the lived experience of of gender, the lived experience of of race, and so there oh is a God. need to there is a need to respond to that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know what to say about that because also his his concept of, of race uh, is 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 uh, mythologist, you know. So he says something that is very popular also in these uh, in this scene is that race is a is a social it's just a social construct. You know, this may even be true. But then for, for him and for other theorists, it also has a material reality, you know, and then race then becomes this platonic ideal according to which reality is structured. And uh, then everything is gendered, everything is racialized, you know, that becomes this, this absolutism. And uh, what I find really worrying when I read this, this theory, and, and Heider is by all means not the only one who, who puts it in these terms, uh, if you read uh, Marxist feminism, um, there's a lot of the authors who, who collapse the normative and the descriptive into one. You know, they they uh, they just, they purportedly describe a certain reality. Everything is gendered. Work is gendered. Uh, private life is gendered. If you go on the street, all of that is gendered. <laughs> And if you and if you say, well, then you know, do something about it, or change it, or <laughs> criticize it. No, we have to first of all view reality in this way. Mm. And and this is, I think, really problematic. It becomes very platonic in some way, uh, platonic realism. But more importantly, even more important than that, is that I think um, Heider, as many other people, he doesn't really understand the difference between oppression and exploitation. And that um, that reflects right. back into his theory. So um, what happens effectively in, in his in his work, at least in this in this uh, critique of of Adolf Reed, uh, he uh, inverts the ideas uh, and and the really existing entities. So he inverts ideas like race into really existing entities and really existing entities like class into ideas. So. so just, just yeah. to, sorry, just to jump in there. What is mm -hmm. like in one or two sentences? Actually, maybe a few more than that. The the distinction between oppression and exploitation. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, I would say uh, oppression is not historically specific to capitalism. That's something that you have uh, more or less any kind of 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 society uh, of of uh, human society we had. And the history of mankind. Uh, it's non-specific, you know, and it can be based on, on, on racism and sexism and so on. But it's not the same as exploitation. Exploitation is, is a very specific uh, economic relationship in which um, that is that is based on the appearance of formal uh, commodity and equivalent exchange which is in fact only possible on the basis of wage labor. So this historically specific term of exploitation based on wage labor uh, is, 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 not, um, is, is, is not the same as oppression, which doesn't mm. even really um, um, need uh, an economic uh, uh, um, expression. So I wanted to um, connect the, some of these questions of value theory to other kind of um, ongoing questions as well, which is specifically the pandemic. So you've written about the myth of objective constraint, and it would be interesting to hear if you could explain a bit more about what you mean by this idea, objective constraint, the myth of objective constraint, and why you think it's so relevant, um, perhaps particularly to the circumstances of lockdown. Yeah. Um, so 
the objective constraint is is nothing else uh, but um, this this fetishism we talked about before, where the social and the natural properties of a phenomenon are in, inverted. In fact, so uh, and the way that you cannot see what what uh, money has to do with labor um, and just a purely social expression of, of uh, relations between people. You cannot see, and it's it's no longer possible to see what Corona and this, this whole phenomenon of the virus has to do with, with the social phenomenon. So Corona is confronted solely as a natural, uh, as a natural thing. And I say, there's nothing natural about it. Not even the source of origin is very natural. You know, if you look at the organization of these, uh, you know, of these markets in, in China, where it purportedly came from. So Corona is not a natural, but a social phenomenon. Then if that is the case, then hospital bed shortages are also purely social. You know? And this argument of, of saving lives to reduce demand for the health system is, is very hypocritical. You know, imagine what states can do when banks fail. Uh, this is something that I said in this mm. article. And the point is this. Capitalism is not a supply and demand economy. This is really important to say. Because it would seem, if you say it's a supply and demand economy, that what is produced in capitalism are use values. And yes, use values are being produced, but they are only produced because they are the bearers of value and surplus value. There is no other reason that, that uh, use values and commodities are being produced. You have to correct the sentence and not say, and say capitalism is not a supply and demand economy. It's a supply and money demand economy. You know, there is no social mediation without money. And uh, this is why this, this talk about Corona as an objective constraint is so hypocritical, you know, because ultimately it's a question of money. You know, it's, it's not a question of life and death and natural properties, but it's a question of money. I, I just have a, a kind of provocative thing to put forward, but I think I've made this point on the podcast before, which is anti-lockdown people naturalize coronavirus just as much as pro-lockdown people. And the reason for that is, is that it doesn't, suggest any real politicization of what happened, both in terms of the creation of the virus, but even but much more so in terms of states' actual preparation for it, the way that they have uh, mobilized or, in fact, not mobilized people to, to uh, respond to it. So in some sense, also the, the anti-lockdown people say, well, you know, lockdowns are bad, there's negative consequences. Okay, we can all agree with that. Um, and that basically the, the struggle should be taking place over whether you're pro-lockdown or not not pro-lockdown, um, which also just accepts that the, the virus is there and that society is at its mercy um, and that it's a natural phenomenon. Um, and I mean, I see it in Brazil very much where the anti-lockdown people are all the far right, not you know, who, um, who also are totally happy with naturalizing and actually not very fussed about whether people die. Um, and so I think what's important in terms of politicizing it is precisely to take it off the terrain of you know, whether you're pro or anti-lockdown, but actually really inquire into and, and politicize what actually happened rather than the emergency responses uh, alone. No, I totally agree to that. I mean, I'm not saying that that the, the right-wing anti-lockdown uh, militants are have a, have a deeper understanding of capitalist relations of production. That's not what I'm saying at all. It would be really strange if they had this, this insight. 
uh, uh, because I never had it, but that's the whole point. I mean, they never had it and I, I wouldn't yeah. expect it from them, but I would expect it from those, you know, educated and, and uh, enlightened people who tell me, you know, they know how, how, how capitalism works. And that's, I, I just, I found this disparity between, you know, on the, on the radical left among Marxists, even saying, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the profit uh, uh, postulate is such a, it's an objective constraint, it's ideological, you know. But when it comes to Corona, suddenly nobody makes that argument anymore yeah. on the left. And that, that disparity is just uh, more striking to me than, than, you know, the anti-lockdowners who also don't have an understanding of, of, of the social character of Corona. Great. Yeah, I agree. Um, so to move it on, I think, and, and kind of, I guess, back to value theory more explicitly, is there a broader politics to value theory? Because I mean, I, um, my, my reading of value theory um, is not that extensive. I've been reading a bit of Robert Kurtz recently. And oh, one yeah. thing that strikes me is, uh, it, it, who's very popular in Brazil, uh, actually. Um, and in yeah, fact, I know, uh, I know. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> I have an article in, 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 in Brazil uh, oh, yeah. about value theory and Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. I'll have to check that out. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of spelling out the, the, the politics of value theory, I mean, it seems to be in some ways beyond political. I mean, that in some ways it, start, it wants to not engage with capitalist politics at all, which would be resolutely revolutionary, but not just that, but it seems to go beyond what we understand as revolution. Certainly, in terms of the model of the Russian Revolution, or you know, other uh, supposedly communist revolutions, in that, and and I guess to be specific, is that it rejects the standpoint of labor. So it's not about us working class who work and create value, and the parasitic capitalists who suck off all this value from us. But it's about uh, getting beyond that itself. So I, I'm interested in what that looks like politically, or indeed maybe it's not even politics. Yeah, interesting. So. Um it is indeed not a standpoint from, uh, it's not a critique from the standpoint of labor against, uh, against capital. This, is, this would be something like the Ru Russian revolutionaries did, you know, criticizing, you know, uh, empowering labor, <laughs> something like that. Uh, value theory would rather be uh, a critique of capitalism from the standpoint of the abolition of labor, from the abolition of class, you know. And um, the politics of value, value theory, well, does value theory engage with capitalist politics at all? Well, it does. The question is, what do you mean by capitalist politics? It certainly engages with capitalist economics and political economy. That's why I always say value theory is essentially the critique of political economy. And in that sense, it's, of course, a critique of, of current capitalist politics as well, you know. And, uh, but I think what's was really more important here, uh, and more trenchant maybe, is that if you have a fetishism critique at the core of politics, this is what value theory I think provides, then a lot of things uh, um, become clearer also on the question of domination. Now, as Marx said, the capitalism is the mode of production in which the production process has mastery over man, instead that man has mastery over the production process. and. The, the point of this of this politics of value theory is would be exactly to have uh, to get back control so to say this, this is a very uh, maybe a stereotypical way to 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 phrase it but Sorry, to did, be no... did, did you say did you say get back control 
Somebody <laughs> should use that as a I slogan. Think, that's not a bad. Yeah. That's not a bad slogan right there. Yeah. Well, it, well you know, to 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 be no longer uh, uh, at the mercy of these fetishisms that create our reality. Can you give us like an example of of a, of of, of uh, what would be a fetishized politics, and then what would yeah, be like, the value theoretical response to what that? Are the, what are the top five fetishisms? And uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I can tell you, uh, it's it's the commodity, it's money, it's capital, it's profit, it's interest and rent. No, but seriously, um, so this objective constraint is a, is a good is a good uh, uh, expression i think that of course when we talk to to economists or even politicians they say well we are in a competitive society so what are you going to do about that right so it is as though truly uh, as frederick jameson had said we could we could uh, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism you know and uh, this is a fetishism, the, the, the um, valorization postulate. Then what else is a fetishism? That uh, the climate uh, will, will kill us all. And uh, this, the debates surrounding the climate, uh, climate change and, and environmental issues. And then, of course, um, Corona itself is, is a kind of, of fetishistic expression of underlying, uh, uh, um, you know, contradictions and problems and fetishisms. So um, these are, I would say, if you ask me straight away, what are the top fetishisms? I would say that's it's them. So, given the the ease with which we can imagine the end of the world, um, either through climate or uh, not so much nuclear war anymore, but um, mm -hmm. coronavirus, um, and also the the state of the left today, mired in in uh, some of the fetishisms that you mentioned, and probably many other problems as well, and also the predominance of the the PMC Leviathan that we talked about earlier. Um, this has almost become a kind of a, a cliched question to end uh, kind of d discussions that we have with with guests, but. I mean, are, are there any reasons for optimism? It would be great if you could just give us some some, some quick wins or some low-hanging fruit, or I'm trying to think <laughs> of some other terrible uh, phrases to, to use. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I guess that's, that, that's the question, right? Like, how do you flip this, this, um, uh, this analysis into some kind of practical, I, I was going to say praxis. I can't think of another word to, to finish that sentence. So I'm just going <laughs> to pass yeah. it over. I mean, I'm really bad at that. I'm really bad at giving, you know, now what are we going to do about this? Give us some, you know. Some yeah, give, give us some easy answers. Some, some, come on, you know, this is like whenever I give a talk at, um, at a conference, this is exact, exactly the question <laughs> every time I get asked every time. So, but I think um, we, we need a more rigorous theory to change it. So stop making concessions to liberals. That would be very, very useful um, to, to lift the debate to a, to a different level where as, you know, as leftists or as Marxists, we stop making these concessions to, to liberal politics. That would be very much, uh, you know, that would be worth something, I think. And if we don't want the 21st century to pass us by, we need to start, yeah, a revolutionary strategy that is truly in the interest of the liberation from, from real subsumption uh, and in the interest of the working class. That's what I think. And this sounds, I know it sounds very general and you're not gonna go outside and, and have a revolutionary strategy tomorrow, but maybe the day after tomorrow. <laughs> 
Excellent. That's cool. a great place to leave it, I think. It's great. Yeah, great. great night. For the day after tomorrow. All right. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you, too. was a pleasure. No, that was, yeah, it was, it was great. I, I, I think when the Conformist Rebellion um, book comes out, which will be probably a year, a year and a half from now, but George, we should have really it. said that you are a contributor, don't you think? No, you want people to to hold George it in high regards. Indicated, so he tried to indicate that with the lame joke. I think yeah, people, but, but he didn't lay it on thick enough. So he just said people are they're fantastic <laughs> contributors, but it didn't. It, it wasn't clear that he was complimenting himself. <laughs> fantastic uh, contributors. Some of these contributors, including myself. <laughs> they're really, they're really great. They're really fantastic. We've got some really fabulous contributors. <laughs> the best, the best, <laughs> the best, the absolute best. Um, no, I, I should have laid it on. Floor. Yeah, yeah. I, I bottled it. <laughs>